Good morning, Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you're listening. We're so glad that you're here. We're so glad that you have joined us again for another episode of the Through the Eyes of Jesus podcast. My name is Isaiah Leiniger. Joining me today, as always, is our good friend Walker Howell. And today we are continuing our special guest season that's coming out over the summer with another very special guest, Dr. Mark Blackwater. Go ahead and say hello, Dr. Blackwater. Hello, Spotify and other listeners. <laughs> good to have you with us today. I appreciate the opportunity to be a part of this discussion. We, we appreciate you being able to, to come and to continue this, this season where we've had several uh, speakers Several men with lots of experience come and, and talk to us and, and help us understand some difficult things that are going on in the world right now. Uh, and that's what we want to continue looking at today is, is worldly problems from a godly perspective, right? That's, that's what we've been trying to say this entire time. That's our, that's our slogan. Uh, and today, as you can tell, the episode is, again, about politics in the church. Now, we, if you remember, we did do an episode regarding whether or not Christians should be involved in politics Earlier in season two with Jesse Eaton, if you haven't listened to that, go ahead and do us a favor and check that out, that, and that'll help lay the foundation for this episode. And like I said, in that episode, we mainly looked at should Christians be involved in politics and how should our role in submitting to the government look like. But today we're going to actually dive into some of the political issues that are dividing the country and more importantly, dividing the church. And we're going to uh, turn to Dr. Blackwater to provide us uh, or to show us, rather, what the scriptures say about each of these controversial issues and what that means for us today as modern-day Christians living in America. I think it's uh, important to go ahead and give our standard disclaimer that, um, you know, these are very controversial topics. These are topics that many don't want to talk about, especially since um, some of these are very uh, debated and stuff like that. So we want to make sure that you're aware that with every single episode that we do, Although these uh, topics are controversial, we try to approach the topics with truth, with love, and sincerity. So that is our main mission in trying to um, approach these topics. So we're not trying to offend anyone whenever we address these issues. Um, we just want you to think critically and evaluate the scriptures for what they have to say. So uh, going right into it, the first uh, political issue that we want to discuss is abortion and the church. And so this is where we ask Dr. Blackwater um, what it well actually before we ask him that question let's define our terms as we like to say um what is abortion and the 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 definition that we sort of formulated um with the help of the merriam-webster dictionary and putting together our words is the deliberate termination of a human pregnancy most often performed uh during the first 28 weeks of pregnancy and so now for dr blackwater how does um god view the unborn child Good question. This is a very challenging and difficult issue, primarily because there's so much emotion attached to it. Mm -hmm. I think on both sides, those who would call themselves uh, pro-choice and those who would call themselves pro-life have very strong feelings about this issue. So the way we the way we deal with this needs to be as biblical as possible. And I think you're asking the right question at the beginning. And one of the things that seems pretty plain is that despite the fact that the biblical authors didn't know scientifically what we know about the development of human beings in the womb, uh, they still spoke about the unborn as people. Uh, for example, in Psalm 139, uh, the psalmist says, You created me uh, in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And notice he's using personal pronouns to talk about himself here. He's not saying, uh, you... you Designed my the fetus from which I developed, for example. Now, obviously, that terminology 
would have been unknown to them, not only in, in uh, English, but even in Greek and in Hebrew. Uh, they just they talked about this being inside the womb as if it was a person. Uh, he goes on to talk about the fact that my frame was not hidden from you, that, that God had designed him. And again, throughout, he's talking about that tiny person very much as a person and, and very much as the person that he not only became, but the person that he was. And so that kind of language is common in Scripture. Uh, Isaiah, similarly in Isaiah 44, uh, in verse 24 says, this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. Uh, so this idea that God designs human beings in the womb and they are already possessive of their identity in the womb, uh, very different than the way that at least some people might conceive, pun intended, of unborn children <clears throat> as, uh, as merely uh, lumps of tissue or, or even as a potentiality. You know, we, we talk about it. This, per, this, this tissue, this fetus will become, you know, if something magical happens at the moment of birth uh, in the minds of some, at least in our current culture, we could get aside into discussions of infanticide or some who would be willing to say that non-viable birthed uh, children are very much in the same position as, uh, as unborn children. But I, I would just suggest that the scripture knows nothing of that distinction. As a matter of fact, they would, the scripture would seem to suggest that something magical happens not at the moment of birth, but at the moment of conception, uh, as we become what it is that God has designed us to be. Another interesting aside in that regard, and we can have further discussion about this, but as I was thinking about this again recently, you take a look at the New Testament and you look at some terminology, and again, we don't want to project upon anachronistically a culture of 2,000 years ago an awareness of, of uh, human development that would not have been present at that time. But note what uh, Luke does as he talks about the unborn person we would call John the baptizer. He uses the Greek word brephos, uh, which is a word used to describe infants, uh, babies, uh, and he uses that to describe John when he's in the, in the womb. He, he, John is not, not only possessive of identity, but the capacity to leap for joy at an encounter with the mother of Jesus on the occasion when Elizabeth and Mary come together before either of those babies were born. They're about six months difference in age. And so uh, John uses that term to describe the interuterine John, uh, the baby Jesus, Luke 2, verses 12 and 16, and then children approaching Jesus during his ministry, Luke 18. The same, same term is used for all of those. That suggests that uh, from a biblical perspective, God makes no distinction between children, babies in the womb and those who are as much as old enough to walk in and sit in Jesus' lap. So I think that the language of Scripture really supports the personhood uh, of, uh, of these babies in the womb, even, and perhaps notwithstanding, their lack of viability. The truth of the matter is, uh, a baby two, two weeks after its birth is really no more viable than a baby six months before its birth. Uh, neither of them can exist without the sustenance provided by others. And so any distinction that we might make uh, is, is really absent from Scripture. So I think in answer to your first question, it's pretty obvious where God is on this uh, and what the Scripture tells us about the the person that exists in the womb.
You bring up some really good points, Dr. Blackwater. Uh, I don't think we mentioned this at the beginning, but just, just for uh, our listeners' sake, Dr. Blackwater is the dean here at Fried Harbin of Biblical Studies. And again, we are so glad to have you on to talk about these things. Uh, so, of course, we, we, you, you brought up the point that God views a child, whether unborn or born, the same way, right? As one of his creations, as someone that he has knitted together in uh, knitted their inward parts together, so to speak. Uh, and so that, of course, jumps to the argument that if that person matters to God, if that person is important to God, which, of course, we know that all people are important to God. He desires all men to be saved, right? First Timothy 2, 4. Then that, I think, can very easily lead us to the point of not supporting abortion at all, not terminating the life of an unborn child or even in some cases, a born child. They're, they're trying to start making some laws that allow that to happen up to a month after the child has been born. Uh, but, you know, the most common argument that people raise when defending abortion <coughs> is, you know, if it's for the protection of the mother or if, it, if the child was conceived in unfortunate circumstances. Uh, so how would you... And more importantly, how does the Bible speak to those things? Good question. Uh, I think we must acknowledge the fact that there is some judgment that has to be made mm-hmm. in certain circumstances. So I think sometimes we have been unfairly characterized as saying that this whole thing is black and white in every way. For example, uh, if you're in a situation where two people are drowning and they are separated from one another by 100 yards and you've got to... You you try to save them. You're unable to save both. You're going to have to make a choice. There's a judgment made there. And in a situation where mother and child are both in jeopardy, uh, what do you choose there? Well, you know, there's some judgment, obviously, to be made in that regard. I do think that oftentimes uh, this is turned into a dichotomy that is false and forced. Uh, We say uh, the woman is at risk because she may not be able to carry this child to term. Well, we're, making, we're engaged in some speculation in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's very different than me rushing out to save one person and allowing another person to be on his or her own when they're drowning in the water. So I think maybe sometimes we've created a sort of a straw man there by creating that kind of distinction. But nonetheless, it's possible if you're, if you're, in, a, if you're in the delivery room and you know, if that, if that woman is not able to deliver that child, you may do something in an emergency that uh, that prefers the life of, of the woman uh, over or prefers the life of a child. That's a decision that you have to make. I would hate to have to be in that situation, but mm-hmm. let's acknowledge that there's some judgment that has to be made there. But to make the exception the rule uh, is almost always a bad idea. Uh, further related to uh, unfortunate circumstances, I appreciate the uh, Isaiah the, the language that you use there. Uh, for example, the most common one is what do you do in the case of rape? for example. And, uh, you know, well, I guess the easy answer and the one that you frequently hear is uh, the child shouldn't be punished because of the sin of some stranger. Uh, You know, the the baby didn't do anything to deserve that. I think that's true, but we acknowledge the fact that uh, in circumstances like that, there is a lot of pain involved, and it's not difficult to see why someone would say, I don't want the result of that action to live inside my body and then to give birth to that as a persistent and constant reminder of that violent act. I mean, I think on a certain level, we can certainly understand that. On the other hand, um, 
we are not authorized as Christians to take matters in our own hands mm. as a result of the sins of others. And we, we, we don't take vengeance. The Bible tells us that vengeance belongs to God. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that would seem to be an unauthorized action. Further, the Bible does exhort us to forgiveness uh, and to accepting uh, things that we don't like. And so um, it would be difficult for me to see in Scripture any authorization for uh, taking the life of that child because of the violence. And let's in no way minimize Mm -hmm. the horrible nature of the violence that might have been perpetrated under those circumstances. But we've somehow maybe found a way to disconnect the the consequences of that action from the life of the child, and I think we have to reconnect those things. Uh, that uh, that that life indeed was created, and now it exists. If there's something you could do so that that life didn't exist, you know, uh, that's one thing. But once that once conception has occurred, a life exists, and the choice to end that life uh, cannot be disregarded as if it uh, it's it's a perfectly legitimate. Uh, reaction to a horrible thing that happened. I think that uh, killing someone innocent simply because you feel very negatively about what has happened to you. uh, Again, these things go back to the first question related to whether or not this actually is a life that God has endorsed. Mm -hmm. And if it is, it's a life that he wishes to protect. And so I don't think we can disconnect those two. Again, some some excellent points, Dr. Blackwater. Um, I think it's important for us to, when we look at this issue, when we say abortion is wrong, abortion is wrong, abortion is wrong, we have to be willing to provide an alternative. Uh, And for a lot of people, that ends up being foster care, that ends up being adoption. And while those are good options, they're not perfect options, and obviously not every foster home or every adoption center or whatever is going to provide the best sort of care. And so I think we as Christians, if we are going to take this pro-life stance that the Bible uh, is, is saying that we need to have, then we also need to be more willing to partake in the things such as foster care and adoption and making sure that those places are as safe and as, uh, as comfortable for those children who are placed there as possible. You know, and that's something that a lot of folks have kind of gotten onto us about as Christians. You say, well, if you support you know the birth of the child why don't you support the child afterwards and I, I think that's a fair criticism I do too I agree completely uh, you guys may not be aware of this but both my children were adopted uh, out of uh, out of orphans homes in Slovakia and so you know that's something that we take uh, we take serious interest in it's something that we uh, if you want to call it putting your money where your mouth is I mean that's something that we did now it was not a result of, of uh, you know us sitting down thinking about being compassionate toward those who might otherwise have been terminated, uh, pregnancies that might have been terminated, it was because of our uh, lack of conceiving in, norm, in normal physical ways. But uh, nonetheless, it has caused us to think very seriously about how important that is. And I'm like you, I think that those criticisms are not without basis. Uh, we have not, uh, we have, we have stood on our principles in terms of protecting unborn life, but we have not always acted with the compassion of Christ. And thinking about those children, so it is. It is, I suppose, reasonably argued that it is as unconscionable to neglect as it is to kill. And uh, we've got no, we've got no, uh, no authorization in Scripture for that kind of neglect. Uh, you know, James tells us that pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this: that we 
visit the orphans and widows in their affliction. So we're, we're, we're called to that in the purest sense of what religion is supposed to be like. And so, uh, you know, I think, uh, we, again, there's perhaps a bit of a dichotomy here where someone will say, okay, are you going to, are you going to take that unborn life or are you going to be gracious? Are you going to protect the unborn life or are you going to be gracious to those who are already born? And the answer is not one or the other. The answer is both. Uh, and so the, uh, I appreciate the fact that, okay, you need to understand that in Slovakia, where we lived at the time we, we adopted the kids, uh, the orphans' homes were attached to hospitals. And you could go in there uh, and give birth to a child. And if you did not want it, you could just walk out, which is exactly what happened in our kids' situation. And, uh, and then they just were taken care of by the government. And there were 105 children in the orphan's home where our kids were and about six or seven staff members. They're not gonna get the same kind of care mm-hmm. that uh, you, know, you, you guys and I, we had in our families. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, uh, I appreciate the fact that abortion was um, endemic in Slovakia at that time. Many women have had multiple abortions. They just didn't think about those as lives and they just took them. I'm grateful for the fact that at least the uh, biological mothers of our two children chose to go to the hospital and allow the baby to be born. Uh, gives those two children an opportunity for, for life and it gave us, to be honest, an opportunity to nurture children, which we otherwise would not have had. So that there are options out there and I think we as Christians need to be very concerned about that, and I think many are. I mean, obviously, we have uh, we have uh, organizations associated with churches in Christ like Agape, which are designed to help with putting children in homes. and And a lot, my parents were foster parents uh, after my brother and I were born. My wife's parents were also foster parents that fostered more than twenty different children. Oh, wow. And so, these are things that we as Christians need to take seriously, and many Christians do. I think many of the accusations that are made are perhaps unfounded, but to the degree that they are not, I think we ought to give serious consideration to that. Excellent thoughts, Dr. Blackwater. And just for the purpose of time, I suggest that we move on to the next okay. topic. Uh, but again, great thoughts. Uh, love the fact that we referenced James 127. I think you saw me turning there. and uh, I don't know if you already had that verse prepared or not, but I thought of that verse right as you were about to say it. Uh, funny how that works. But anyway. Great minds think alike. Yeah, well... Great minds and, and me. Uh, but anyway, the next uh, topic that we would like for you to address, and more importantly for to reference what the scriptures say about it, is gun control. Uh, and this is something that has kind of always been a thing in our culture. Uh, of course, you know, even going back to the Revolutionary War, right? guns have been a big deal and continue to be a big deal. Uh, but a lot of people cling to this, this constitutional right you know, given to us since we are citizens of the United States, they cling to this very deeply and they say it's God given. Mm-hmm. And they say, you know, this becomes sort of a standoff when, when some people suggest that we should limit uh, the amounts or the, the kinds of guns that people can have. And obviously, you know, guns weren't around in the scriptures, but, but what do you think the scriptures have to say about the subject and, and especially in regards to submitting to the government? Yeah, you know, as a, as a result of being invited to do this, I went ahead and got a concordance and looked up all biblical references to guns. And uh, as you pointed out, there aren't any, obviously. And, uh, but it certainly is the case that uh, the ability to do violence with mechanical objects wasn't invented when guns were invented. Mm-hmm. So people had access to things that could hurt other people. And, and uh, so that was a part of the landscape of sorts. And uh, there's no mention 
of limiting those kinds of things in Scripture. Uh, but we live in a climate, every, every generation does, lives in a climate where people crave uh, justice and safety and, uh, and want to do things to try to ensure that. And at the same time, almost always people live in a climate where people value freedom and the ability to self-determine. And as such was the case when our United States Constitution was drafted uh, over 200 years ago. And there are references in there to our rights and language that's used in relation to that that uh, causes exactly what you're talking about here, Isaiah. Uh, we have references there to unalienable rights, uh, things that ought not ever be withheld from human beings. Now, it's a, it's a step from inalienable to God-given. Uh, and that step, I think, we need to be awfully careful with. Uh, our, our founding fathers uh, connected those kinds of things, uh, but not maybe as a direct way as we sometimes do. Uh, the, the founding fathers were believers. They may have been deists, but nonetheless, they were, they were people who saw God at work in our world and believed in a sort of a, in some sense, manifest destiny that they were acting as hands for God in the development of this this society which would better reflect God's intentions and that's all very noble and honorable but for us to do something maybe that they didn't do and that is to begin to inject language that suggests that particular elements of our rights were somehow themselves directly ordained by God is a bit of a stretch. Uh, while uh, I'm, I'm a gun owner and I come from a long line of rednecks you know and so we, we tend to be very comfortable with that and, uh, and we want to defend that partially because we don't see the harm in it, perhaps, mm -hmm. and partially because we really want to reserve the right to do what citizens did 250 years ago, and that is to rise up against the government if it is oppressive. Um, so that's, that's kind of a part of our identity as a nation, but I would be awfully careful uh, with <coughs> the, the use of that, uh, that term God-given to refer to our rights. We, we see freedom as being something that God endorses, uh, and so the ability to choose for oneself, the ability to self-determine is, is uh, I mean, that's, I would argue that that indeed is a God-given right. Uh, God allows us to do things he doesn't want us to do. That's freedom for you. But how does that apply to things like gun control? Well, uh, some that has to be decided by, by the courts, and I'm not a constitutional scholar, uh, by any stretch of the imagination, and, and many of other people talking about this very vehemently are also not constitutional scholars, but believe that they have understood what the framers of the Constitution meant and then how that ought to be interpreted today. Obviously, there's a great deal of disagreement on that. Uh, just a few foundational sorts of things as we think about this then. First of all, uh, as you well know, Jesus was accountable to the government. He paid his taxes. When asked the question about whether he should have, he said, yes, I give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what's God. And boy, it just, that is, I know this won't be shocking to you, but what a perfect expression of a principle that we have to call into play on things like this. Uh, you know, we therefore are obedient to the government in ways that we can be. And on occasions where that's not possible, we prefer God over government. And that's just the way that we do things. That Jesus accepted judicial authority, even in his own case. Uh, Jesus, having the power that he had, could easily have... He walked out of crowded places before without being able to be apprehended. He could have done it when he was taken into custody here, but he didn't. Instead, he submitted to it. And so 
there's an endorsement there, which we see um, come back up throughout Scripture. For example, Peter in First uh, Peter chapter two, verse thirteen: "Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, including." He goes on to say, "Those that aren't very nice, uh, those who don't deserve that kind of thing." But remember, submit yourself for the Lord's sake. You know, Jesus is are the relationship we have with the Lord is the locus of control for our interaction with uh, all authorities. Uh, perhaps the clearest, as you know, uh, passage that speaks to this relationship is Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, uh, which in- affirms God's endorsement of government. Now, this has been, I believe, I like some of you guys having class know that I like to be very clear when I'm giving my judgment rather than <laughs> having it thus said the Lord. I believe that some people have overstated uh, God's involvement in the ordinance of government. In other words, I don't believe God puts every single ruler in that position. Many uh, governmental leaders have gotten into their offices through cheating, uh, through murder, other things that God certainly did not endorse. But the concept of government and the responsibility of the populace in general to be submissive to the government, God certainly endorses that. Uh, on the other hand, we see a number of places in Scripture where people were involved in civil disobedience. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel come to mind. Uh, Peter and John, Acts chapter 4 and 5, and we must obey God rather than men. Those kinds of things remind us that the authority of government is not absolute. But nonetheless, in every occasion where you see civil disobedience, you see a clear-cut rejection of something that God had particularly called people to. And uh, I'm not sure we can put gun control in that same category. Uh, I I hope that all my life I will be able to keep my guns and go hunting if I want to. Uh, And I I will work to retain that privilege and right through legal means. Uh, I I will protect that to the degree that I think it's good. Uh, but uh, I would not be permitted to disobey the law in order to retain that, I don't think. Uh, that, uh, that Me owning a gun is not a God-given right. Uh, it's, it's, it, there's a certain sense, obviously, the right to keep and bear arms is built into our, our uh, Constitution, but the Constitution is, to some degree, a living document, and the interpretation and, and uh, legislation associated with that may change over time. And so we have to say... Yes, there are things that we care about, but we don't care about them as much as we do pleasing God, and obeying the government is something that pleases God. Now, in terms of the particulars about whether or not, uh, how how we go about uh, arguing for and pursuing rights like that, uh, you know, know, we we can vote. Uh, we can campaign, we can argue vociferously for those things that we value and want to retain as, uh, as legal rights, uh, but we would have to, in my judgment, stop just short of, of doing anything that would be illegal on those matters where it is not a direct uh, confrontation, of, for, confrontation with or violation of the will of God. So put me in the camp of people who would like to keep that one but not in the camp of people who would do something illegal in order to keep it. You know, I think it, I think both things uh, uh, that you brought up with gun control, you know, the obedience to the government and the fact that we want to retain the right to make sure that the government is keeping itself orderly, so to speak. 
I think both of those can go back to intention, right? Uh, especially, you know, the intention of owning a gun, right? You, you mentioned hunting or, or self-defense or, you know, in extreme cases, uh, defeating the government if, when it becomes uh, tyrannical, so to speak. And so I think the important thing for us to remember is, you know, when someone says that they have a gun or that they're getting a gun, you know, obviously it's their intention with the gun that, that is important. But more, even more importantly than that, uh, it, our intention in life should be to serve God, mm-hmm. right? Obviously, the, the things that we're talking about on this podcast, we're talking about them because they're important topics. We're talking about them because they're topics that a lot of people are talking about. They're controversial topics, and we need to know what the Scripture says about them. But at the same point in time, like you said, gun control is not something that is necessarily essential for us today, right? It, it doesn't have that salvation impact that we like to talk about, right? It, it's it's a, something relevant to today's society, but past today, what is it going to matter? Let me add one more thing. It's something that kind of ties the two concerns we've discussed so far together, Uh a number of years ago, Ethelgard Smith wrote a book called When Choice Becomes God. Uh, and he applied that particularly to what was happening in the arena of abortion in the United States of America at that time. And when we decide that my ability to choose is more important than anything else, then babies can die and it's worth it. Right? But the same thing can be said of this particular issue. Uh, if our affection for our own freedom of choice becomes more important to us than safety of others, or particularly when it becomes more important to us uh, than, uh, than being submissive to the legitimately authorized authorities, then we might want to ask, has choice become a God? Uh, I value my liberty, but it is not my highest value. And I think we need to be very careful about exalting choice uh, to the highest value. Because our choice should be to serve God. That's the most important choice that we can make in life, is whether or not we choose to obey what God has said. Most definitely. Um, you know, I, whenever I think about the idea of um, gun control, and this, I think, is going to turn into another question, if I can formulate it correctly, um, and that is, um, we... Again, great points, Dr. Blackwater. Uh, is there anything else that you would like to share that you prepared for this uh, to talk about this issue before we move on? Yeah, I appreciate you asking. I, I found this. This is not original to me. This is something that I found online. I thought it was about a succinct and thoughtful approach to some principles that might govern our uh, desire to challenge uh, the government when that we feel that's necessary uh, without being in violation of the authority that God has put in place. And so I found these online and I'll be happy to share the source with you. Uh, Four principles. First of all, civil disobedience is permitted when the government's laws or commands are in direct violation of God's laws and commands. I think that's the time we understand that to be most clear cut. Uh, Second of all, uh, Christians should resist a government that commands or compels evil and should work, if possible, nonviolently within the laws of the land to change a government that permits evil. I think about this in relation, for example, to what was happening in Nazi Germany back during the 30s and 40s. I mean, we'd like to have seen Christians say, wait a minute, this is not right. 
And so we're going to we're going to step up and keep, make our voices heard, and we're going to work through our representatives in order to make sure that this doesn't happen. You know, so that that, that sort of a an imposing in a in a direct way, uh, not being passive when when evil is being done. Now, number three, if a Christian disobeys an evil government, unless he can flee from the government, he should accept that government's punishment for his actions. This is something we do not wish to hear, but. When we, cho- when we choose to oppose the government, we are, in a sense, saying, I recognize that this may cost me, and I'm willing to pay that cost because I'm, because I'm advocating for something that I believe God would want me to advocate. I think that's an important part of this that we often ignore. We want to oppose, but we don't want to accept the consequences. Jesus opposed and accepted the consequences. That did the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. All three of those men opposed evil to the death. Challenging for us. And then, number four, Christians are certainly permitted to work to install new governmental leaders that more readily reflect the ideals to which they uh, attach themselves uh, using, using structures that are indeed legal and good. I think we, I would argue, we ought to accept that. That's, that's a part of being non-passive. Uh, it's an active way that is not uh, revolutionary in the, in the way that maybe we might think about those kinds of things, but it's still uh, a, a, an active approach to engaging change. So I thought those were good. Definitely. Uh, something that you mentioned, uh, point number three, if, if the Christian is willing to stand up for the truth and stand up to uh, corrupt government, they must be willing to accept the consequences of that. And you mentioned, of course, Christ. You mentioned the apostles. Uh, but someone else that we mentioned already in this podcast that I wanted to draw our attention back to was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you remember the story in Daniel chapter 3, the king Nebuchadnezzar uh, sets up this golden image in the city of Babylon. And he tells all the city citizens of the city to bow down and worship this idol. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were three Jewish men, young men who had been captured and and now transported to Babylon to serve the king, refused. They said, we're not, we're not going to worship God, or this God, we're going to worship our God. We're not going to bow down to anything else before or besides our God. And so the king hears about this, and he pulls these young men in front of them. So now they're defending themselves in front of the king. And he, he asks them, you know, why are you refusing to worship this golden image that I've set up? You know, if you, if you don't do it, I'm going to throw you into the furnace. I'm going to kill you. And, you know, we don't see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego plead for their life. We don't see them, you know, try to, you know, yell at the king and get in a shouting match with them and say, well, you're wrong. This is, this is wrong. We can't be doing this. Instead, we, uh, what we see in Daniel chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 16, they said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. You know, they, they, look, they are looking this king right in the eye and saying, we don't care what you do to us, we are going to serve God. God is our first priority. We are citizens of heaven first and then citizens of whatever earthly kingdom we are a part of. And I love how they first told Nebuchadnezzar, God can save us. And that's exactly what can happen for us as well. God can deliver us out of said persecution. But if that's not his will, if he chooses to allow us to endure that persecution, 
then first off, we've done what we were supposed to. We've endured for the cross of Christ. We've stood up for the truth. And we have confessed God's name before men, and so our name will be confessed before him. Secondly, we need to recognize the fact that, yes, punishment is likely to happen. Persecution is likely to happen when we stand up and say, this is not right. You know, because when the world is, is drifting one way and we try to force it back the other way, we're going to meet some uh, people who don't like that. We're going to meet some people who uh, are resistant to that. But no, no matter what, they, were, they said to the king, we're not going to serve your gods. We're not going to give up our faith just for your protection. We're going to serve God. And, you know, no matter what happens in this life, no matter what persecution or suffering, you know, befalls us because of our faith, because we're standing up for the truth, I think it's important for us to remember Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. And this is one of my personal favorite passages of Scripture. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that it, which shall be revealed in us. He says, don't worry about what's going on right now. Yeah, it's going to be difficult. Yes, it's going to be painful and, and sorrowful. But we've got so much better things waiting for us if we can just endure through this troubling time. It's important for us to recognize that accepting consequences... Uh, is a, is a uh, an indicator of our persistent belief that God indeed is worthy of our trust, and so once we once we make that decision, then everything else is contingent upon that. Some great points so far, and uh, excellent insight. Um, and as we flow right into our third point or third topic of discussion, immigration, um, this is one uh, that I really never thought much of. Uh, prior to discussing this podcast. Well, I knew that it existed, but I never really did think of the biblical viewpoint of it. And so this would, um, this is the one I'm looking forward to hearing from Dr. Blackwater about because uh, we see that it's been a big issue. It's, it especially comes up within the political campaigns whenever people run for presidency and stuff like that. And so um, on our notes, we have a physical country must protect its borders in some fashion, which means um, immigration, both legal and illegal, are consistently hotbed topics in the world uh, of politics. For many years now, there have been a divide on how Christians especially especially should deal with this topic. And so, Dr. Blackwater, how does a Christian uh, balance commandments of kindness and compassion with a submission to the government? That's a good question. Um, I think when I, when I get in a situation where there are competing values, uh, and that's really the highlight of this question is you... Uh, we, we want to do right, we want to show compassion, but we also acknowledge the fact that uh, sovereign nations have the right to set borders, mm -hmm. you know, and so how do, and of course we're not in the business, of, most of us are not in the business of actually establishing those borders, the borders are already established, right. and yet there is an influx sometimes of people uh, who are from outside and we've got to decide how we're going to treat them. And, and not only that, we might have to be in a position to say uh, a, a kind of a totalitarian uh, regime which does not allow for people to be to enter and be helped is not something I'm comfortable with uh, I want to I want to create an environment where people who have needs can be helped and so I might want to work in uh, legal ways um, I want to advocate for uh, you know legitimate ways for people to be able to enter the country who have needs and things like that so there's that on a grand scale more global scale how do we 
How do we speak to our nations, the nations of which we are a part, being places where those who are um, harmed or threatened can find rest, you know, can find a place. And so that's one level. The other level, of course, is people are among us and around us. And some of them come to us from those kinds of circumstances. How do we, how do we respond to that? I mean, as an individual, how do I respond to that? I mean, right now, of course, we've gone the main, uh, main screens of our lives, the, what's happening in Ukraine, for example, but in previous years, it's been people on the African subcontinent and other places where, where horrible things are taking place and people are on the run. You know, I think about Syrian refugees a couple of years ago, and, and so the, the, the world stages has got this drama playing out, and we, we're asked to, to make a, a decision about how we behave in that regard. And so when that happens, what I like to do is to look at things that God shows us about himself. I mean, the, the nature and character of God is our best indicator of the ideal to which we should aspire. And so I think about, the first thing that came to mind when I thought about this was Exodus chapter 3. Uh, the people of Israel have been in Egypt for hundreds of years, and uh, God comes to Moses in chapter 3, and we know that he's going to commission Moses to go out and let the people uh, guide the people out of Israel, and we know that the plagues are going to happen and all of that. But, but long before that, and in this passage, we tend to focus on Moses and his excuse-making and the way God responds to that. But I want you to notice what God says when he first starts this in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 7 after the burning bush uh, narrative. He says, I have seen the affliction of my people. Now, this is important. God's looking. He's seeing the, the inequities and the hardships that people are suffering. These things are not invisible to God. He knows about them and he cares about them. Now, obviously, here in Exodus chapter 3, one might say, well, yeah, but these are his chosen people. Well, Yes, uh, but I don't see in Scripture a neglect of other peoples of the world. I think, for example, God sending Jonah to Nineveh suggests that he cares about those people and their, their, uh, the way things are happening in their lives as well. So I think it's important for us to remember that as God takes a look at what's happening in the world around us, he's not happy with, what, with the circumstances that people are living in. And if he's not happy, I shouldn't be content with that either. Uh, notice the language of Leviticus chapter 19. Uh, you know, and then again, right here in the heart of this section of Scripture that deals very much with God's covenant people, the people of Israel, notice what he says in verses 33 and 34. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. Listen to this language. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Notice how he he ties these two things together. He says the way you treat people now needs to be done in acknowledgement of the fact that you have suffered injustice in the past, that your people have been treated wrongly, and you don't want to be like that. And so the language that we see in Old Testament here explicitly says those folks who come from outside ought to receive the compassion and kindness that you would give to those who are like you. And that sort of, in, in some respects, erases the distinction that we may want to make. Uh, we, we want to divide people up into categories and we want to dispense certain kinds of treatment to those who we feel like deserve it. And we may either give a different kind of treatment to others or maybe just ignore them altogether because it seems so foreign to us. And, 
Uh, scripture doesn't really allow for that. Even in the Old Testament, which we regard to be far less gracious than the New Testament generally, and yet here's this beautiful exhortation to grace. Uh, yeah, this person does this person deserve what you guys have been able to have as a result of God's blessings? Maybe not, but I want you to give it to them anyway. And uh, so that kind of uh, perspective connected to the, to the character of God ought to cause us to see people who come into our land or people who are refugees in other places. Uh, we ought to see them as objects of love because that's the way that God sees them. Um, there is one other additional thing in Hebrews, you're familiar with this passage, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. We all show hospitality to strangers, for in doing so, the Hebrews writer says rather cryptically, some entertained angels unawares. Now, I think we can take a look at examples like that for uh, in Abraham and, uh, and Isaac and Jacob. All of them had moments like that where God visited them in, with his messengers in specific ways and, and they had the opportunity to, to treat a stranger in a particular way. I don't think that means necessarily that we're entertaining angels all the time here. What I'm saying is some have. And the exhortation is not to angel entertainment. The exhortation is to hospitality. By the way, hospitality is one of the most prolific concepts in all of Scripture. It shows up in every single writer's corpus of Scripture, every one of them. All of them make some reference to hospitality. And that doesn't just mean inviting people over for a meal. It means taking care of their needs. Mm -hmm. And you see that operationalized in the Old Testament. You see just what a profound thing that is. Sometimes to a fault, I think about the way that Lot tried to protect the angels who were in his household, not knowing they were angels. Uh, you know, he, he was wrong to offer his daughters to those people, but it shows you how he understood hospitality. We're a long way away from that. That's very much an all-encompassing thing for them, and uh, it needs to be far more all-encompassing than it is for us, it seems to me. We cannot claim to be living in God's image when we show a lack of concern and care for those who are oppressed or hurting. I just think we, I think we can do better than that. So we think about uh, again, we need to be careful that our, our choice to protect our borders and to protect our way of life doesn't become more important to us than showing compassion for the oppressed and disenfranchised. Those, those are may, may be very high values to us, but they ought never, for a Christian citizen of the kingdom of God, they ought never overwhelm our desire for freedom and self-protection uh, ought never, or protecting our way of life ought never to overwhelm the compassion that God calls us to as his people. You bring up some excellent points, Dr. Blackwater, and I have a, a couple comments that I would like to make. Uh, first, you know, up until very recently, honestly, I considered, you know, I hadn't really considered what I would do if I was placed in the situation where I found out that someone had gotten into this country illegally. You know, and obviously there's the justice side, which says, you know, if they are here illegally, then they need to you know, pay the consequence for breaking the laws of this country, which of course would be getting kicked out of this country. Uh, but you bring up a, a great point about the compassion and the love that Christ had for others and how we as Christians need to be better mirrors of that, do a better job of showing that to other people. And so it would, it would be difficult for me in that circumstance as it would for anyone else 
to, to really know what the best thing to do there is, you know, balancing justice with compassion. Um, but I think you bring up a really good point in that, you know, no matter what laws this country may have in place, that our allegiance is to the laws of God. Mm-hmm. And God says to, yes, subject, uh, be subjected to the government, but also, more importantly, be compassionate and, and help those around you and be hospitable and provide for their needs. These things don't necessarily have to be in direct opposition to one another. For example, if I were to find out that, okay, first of all, you need to know that there was a period of time in my children's lives when they were illegal aliens in the United States. We came back here on a visitors, they came back on visitors, came with us, they weren't back because they'd never been here before. They came with us on visitors' visas. And about that time was when 9-11 took place. I understand that was like before you guys were born. But uh, it, you know, all the wheels that governed uh, the immigration process ground to a screeching halt under those circumstances, and one understands why. Well, our kids kind of got caught in the middle of that. And so our kids were here, but we are, their visa expired, and we couldn't take them to Slovakia, and we couldn't keep them here. So, I mean, what could you do? And so uh, there was a period of time where you might argue that justice was not being served, but you couldn't, you couldn't do something that was compassionate while maintaining that. So what we did was we pursued justice. We did not have it yet, but we pursued it. Uh, hopefully in ways that were compassionate as their parents. We, you know, we, uh, we wanted to love, show love to them. And I, so if I were, uh, if, I, if I came upon someone who was an illegal alien, now one way of handling that would be to go immediately to the authorities and report them. Another way might be to go to them and say, I'd like to help you gain legal status here in our country. If you were willing to work and if you were willing to go through the process, I'm willing to provide uh, possible employment. Uh, I'm willing to provide financial support for the process that you can't. And so I'm going to pursue that justice. I don't think justice is like a light switch. You don't just flip it on and off. Mm-hmm. You, you look for the light. You draw closer to it. Mm-hmm. And so you know sometimes justice is a process. And so if I, I think if I do that, I am balancing uh, justice and compassion. Um, I, I may not be successful, uh, but if I if I say I want, it's not right for you to be here illegally, and so let's see if we can fix that. Uh, and it, and maybe I'm not maybe I'm not capable of doing it, but I want to pursue that. I think the pursuit of justice in a compassionate way, uh, to some degree, harmonizes with what Scripture tries to call us to. I think that's a great great way of looking at it. A great way of balancing. You know the need to subge- uh, be subjecting to the government while also showing compassion. Uh, the 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 other comment that I, that I wanted to make kind of bounces off of that. Uh, you reminded me of something I should say. Uh, you know, we were we were talking on this episode earlier about how we as Christians need to do more with the foster system, with the adoption system, making sure that there are reforms in those two institutions to make sure that the children are being taken care of properly. I don't see why we can't have the same attitude for the immigration system. Because right now, from my limited understanding, albeit, uh, but the way I understand it, the way to gain legal entry into this country is a long and difficult and complicated process. And I think if we could, you know, pressure our legislators and and those making the decisions of that kind of magnitude, if we could, you know, try to talk to them about 
easing that process, making it easier for people to be legal citizens of this country, I think that would do exactly what you were talking about, Dr. Blackwater, being able to balance justice and compassion. And I think that's, those would be two great things. Uh, and, and obviously those are two things that we need to strive for as Christians. And then the, uh, the last thing that I wanted to say on this topic, uh, a couple weeks ago, maybe, maybe a few months ago now, uh, I was at church and, and one of the members got up and, and started leading a public prayer. And, you know, in the beginning it was, it was a normal prayer, you know, praying for the sick, praying for the work of the church, that kind of thing. And then he started talking about immigration and inwardly I kind of groaned a little bit. You know, I thought he was going to start getting on a political rant in the middle of this prayer. And I was, you know, getting ready to tune him out because I didn't want to, I didn't want to have to listen to that while I was trying to focus on God. But then he said something that, that really struck me and something that I've been thinking about uh, since he said it. And I, you know, I wasn't expecting him to say it, but when he said it, it made all the sense of the world to me. And that was, we shouldn't see the people coming here as immigrants, especially illegal immigrants. We shouldn't see them as lawbreakers and those deserving of punishment. We should look at them as evangelistic opportunities. Mm. We should look at them and, and say, that person is here. I'm here. That person needs the gospel. I've been taught the gospel. That's how we should look at immigration, not whether or not this person is legally allowed to be here we need to make sure that we are caring more about the things of the soul and not of the world, right? Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2 to set our minds on things above, not on things of the world. And I think when we look at immigration and immigrants as evangelistic opportunities and not just people who are here, then I think that really helps focus our mind on what we need to do as Christians. Most definitely. And um, as we transition into the well, we, we created a fifth point while uh, Dr. Blackwater was talking. Um, and, surprise. Uh, surprise, <laughs> yes. Um, and as we transition into this, this will also give us an opportunity to say any final thoughts that we have about any of the topics that we discussed. But the big question that remains for me and I'm sure other people listening is how do we talk to other people who, um, who may not agree with us on these certain issues about um, these things? Uh, Dr. Blackwater came and spoke in our personal – Isaiah and I – Isaiah and I's personal evangelism class uh, the other day, and he talked about ways to have an argument, but he also talked about ways to handle that argument as well. And so I was curious if you could just uh, briefly go over um, how we could uh, go about approaching these difficult topics whenever talking to someone about them and maybe apply some of those argumentative principles that you talked about in personal evangelism with us. Yeah, good question, Walter. Um, I guess I should begin with a disclaimer of sorts. I wouldn't claim that I do this as well as I ought to, right? But I do think that some of the things that I mentioned in your class the other day uh, will help. Uh, one of the things that I mentioned was uh, an assumption that people are acting in good faith. Uh, you know, people want to do something they believe to be right. You may disagree that it's right. But for example, even those who want to affirm uh, the woman's right to choose to abort a baby. Mm -hmm. Did you hear the way that they've intentionally framed that as pro-choice? They, they want to protect somebody else's rights. Well, is that an honorable thing to do? And, uh, yes, that, that choice to protect somebody else's rights or to look out for them is honorable in their minds. So they're not, these are not evil people. I mean, these are not the spawn of Satan you were talking about here. These are, these are folks who care about things. Mm -hmm. And so I think any conversation where we say, I disagree with this person, but I can see that they care about things, that that already 
diffuses at least some of the heat uh, from, from that. So start with that. Start by assuming that people are acting in good faith, just like you are. Uh, second of all, again, look for common ground. Mm-hmm. What, what are some of the things that we share? Uh, do they, I mean, this, this person who's advocating for abortion may well have three children at home, and they love them, and they, they want to do right, and they want their kids to grow up in a society that looks out for them, just like us, as it turns out. And so looking for that kind of common ground and, and approaching that with a, with a little bit less, uh, a little bit less uh, vociferousness mm-hmm. might be appropriate. A third, I think, I would just say, uh, maybe not so quick to speak in absolutes in areas where things aren't so absolute. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, listen... I was raised in a very black and white kind of way, and I'm very comfortable with black and white things. But, you know, I've come to realize there are just an awful lot of things that there's some judgment associated with. And so I'm not not saying that abortion is one of those things, for example, since I brought that up a moment ago. But what I am saying is that having a conversation with someone that I agree with, when I say, I wonder, instead of, don't you see that, for example, or if I say, I struggle some, with this, and here's something that bothers me. What's your perspective on that? It just it just feels very, very different, and diffuses a lot of that tension. Uh, and uh, and you know, again, trying to stay as close as possible to what Scripture tells us, but not only in terms of the thou shalt and the thou shalt nots, but really coming to to understand the character of God and how that affects the principles that we use to make decisions in areas where there is any wiggle room at all. I think those are some of the kinds of things that I would want to see. Uh, there, are, there are people that I am friends with whose political orientation is different than mine. And they may even, uh, they may even espouse a political platform that includes some planks that I just have a real problem with. Uh, but if I treat them with dignity and respect, acknowledge their good faith, and maybe drill down just a little bit. For example, if you if you make it truly political, you say people. One political party argues against. Is one political party has a plank that is pro-choice. The other political party has a plank that is pro-life. Mm-hmm. Well, you might well find out that people who declare themselves to be a part of this party are also not pro-choice. They are pro-life. Uh, so the assumptions that we have that if you accept this, you got to accept everything in that. Mm-hmm. Well, that is not true. I, I value what happens here in Free Harbor's campus, but there's some things that happen on this campus I don't like. And I, I love this place. I've been here 25 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's still there's some things I don't like. Not only there's some things, there's some policies that are different than what I would, would like to see here. Uh, there are some behaviors on campus by people who are good people who they just do wrong. And so just recognizing that if we stereotype a particular category of people politically, mm-hmm. we we might benefit from disaggregating that to the point where we say, let's, let's talk about this particular concern without labeling people who accepted the broader platform as if they must accept that as well. That's just not fair. Uh, I don't want to be branded in that way, and I don't expect you to either. And so I think those are some of the kinds of things we can do to have peaceful and productive conversations with people from with which we differ. Okay. Uh, you... Very, very good insight, and um, very, very, and we're very thankful for you joining us today and you um, coming and sharing all of your uh, helpful 
tips, but also knowledge from Scripture and um, and ways to not only approach these conversations, but how we should look at these conversations, or not how we should look at these conversations, how we should look at these uh, issues from a biblical standpoint. Um, and so it has, uh, I have benefited greatly from this discussion, and I'm sure Isaiah has, and Dr. Blackwater has as well. And, um, and we are uh, honored to have you as not only my professor here, but uh, also to have you with us on the podcast today. Um, Isaiah, do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up? I just want to say that if you have a question about something that was said, that we have ways that you can reach out and contact us. Uh, if you want to talk about what we said here on this episode or talk about some things that we said on a different episode, or if you just want to have a conversation about the scriptures or, or anything at all, we would love to be able to, to reach out to you and talk to you. Uh, we are on Facebook at TTEOJ. Uh, you should be able to find us there on Facebook. We also have an Instagram page, TTEOJ underscore podcast. We have a website, TTEOJ.com. And on that website, you can find a lot of helpful things uh, revolving or involving this conversation, especially the sources that Dr. Blackwater and that we have used uh, in preparation for this. Uh, there are also there are going to be some sort of discussion questions on there if you would like to uh, listen to this with uh, your friends or your family and then use those discussion questions to help you further gain understanding into this topic. We have those on the website as well. And then, uh, Walker, we also have a phone number. Yes. Uh, the phone number is 731-439-9671. So if you want to text or call us there, uh, preferably text. Um, but if you do call us, just leave us a voice message and we'll be sure to return your phone call. Um, it is uh, college life, so the schedule is crazy. But we will do your our best to get back with you. Um, and then also, if you would like to email us, we have an email, info at tteoj.com. So a uh, variety of ways to contact us. Um, and uh, we will be more than happy to answer any of your questions or even study with you further if you would like to study further um, regarding any of the topics, not just this topic, um, but any of the topics that we discussed before. Um, Isaiah, I think it's fitting that we close this uh, discussion in prayer. Let's go to God. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us. Lord, we thank you for the sunshine outside and for the rain. We thank you for for the blessing that it is to, to have your love. Lord, we know that you show love to everyone and you showed your, the greatest act of love of all by sending Christ to die on the cross. Lord, help us to focus on that. Help us to have our minds set on serving you and, and worshiping you. Lord, we know these, these things that we discussed today are important topics, but they're not the most important thing, Lord. And help us to remember that whenever we are having these conversations with our friends or with our acquaintances or whoever they may be, Lord, help us to remember that this is not the most important subject. Also, Lord, help us when we are having these conversations to do so in a way that is not argumentative, but do so in a way that is, is showing love and, and spreading compassion to all those, even those who may have a differing opinion on these matters. Lord, we thank you so much for the scriptures and for the examples that we see in there and for the applications that we see in there that, that help us to be better Christians, help us to be able to focus more on your word and, and what it means for us and, and how we can teach it better to others. Lord, please help us to remember the value of everyone's life, including our own, Lord. Help us to 
to remember the fact that you made us, that we are created in your image, and that, Lord, you love us so much, and that you love everyone on this earth so much, so much so that you sent your Son to die on the cross. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.